Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to them and then we get together to have a good old discussion. This time we're on episode 13, which brings us to Planet Waves, released in January 1974. So hello, Rich. Yeah, we're back in again with another one. How are you today, sir? I'm I'm very well actually. I think we're we're calling this episode thirteen. It might go out as episode fourteen because of the the crazy fandango that was the out of sync Christmas special. But I'm sure that no no one out there is going to lose too much sleep about that. But there we go. <laughs> this is the problem with special episodes. You see, I did warn you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I just I wouldn't I wouldn't be told though. That was the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as always, we kick off with a little stroll down memory lane. What's your backstory with Planet Waves, Rich? Yeah. So my backstory really is I'm almost entirely new to it this time. I knew very little of this. Um, I seem to think this is a bit of a running theme now. Um, You're the one who's heard all these records before and I'm the one who's masquerading as a Bob Dylan fan and then I I realise I've only listened to about six or seven of them ever before. I love the version of Forever Young from the Last Waltz album, which of course is like 1976. And that was I suppose the aspect of this that I was most familiar with, and that was that's been quite a, a sort of special song, really, because I used to read the book. There's a there's a book of it illustrated by Paul Rogers, not Paul Rogers out of Free, the band, but uh, Paul Rogers, the illustrator, and it kind of just tells the story of Forever Young, and so very very familiar with that song, then very very unfamiliar with with everything else on it. But I've I've really enjoyed this record. I think it's been great listening to it over the last couple of weeks. But it's been like a new discovery. What about you, mate? What's your kind of history with with Planet Waves? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for bigging me up as a Bob Dylan fan. I mean, that's the sort of thing you don't want to lay claim to, isn't it? On the basis <laughs> that you'll get shot down. <laughs> that's definitely the case for me. I'm, I'm not going to make the case of myself as a true believer. But yeah, I had heard this record uh, uh, before, and I think it's interesting that you know, this is one of the ones that you hadn't heard before because it does fly under the radar a little bit. And I think that was one of the things I remember about hearing it for the first time. Uh, so just like with, with New Morning, I think, this was a Bob Dylan record that I, I could feel as though I discovered myself when I first came to it um, 25 years ago or whatever it was. And yeah, I was very much um, in that kind of first two or three years of, of uh, knowing about Bob Dylan and just going through all his records. And this was one of those ones that I would have got out of the library or bought out of a bargain bin in a, in, a, in a music superstore. And you never quite know what you're going to get when you do that. But this one was just fantastic. Right from the start, it really grabbed me. And it's been one of the records that I've come back to the most, I guess. Even more than New Morning, which is another favourite, of course, as we discussed a couple of, of episodes ago. But I think this is a stronger record than New Morning, even though it's kind of unfair to compare them, given they are such very different records. But yeah, I was, I was thinking about it. I think one of the things that I was really attracted to back then was the kind of sentimentality that runs through the record. I don't know if you know this about me, Rich, but I am a bit of a sentimentalist. And that kind of thread that, you know, has him hankering back to his, his childhood in, in, in a lot of the songs resonated. And it still does. There's almost something a bit pastoral about that, I suppose, that yearning for a, a sort of bygone era or a place that he can kind of no longer go, go back to. And I think it's probably quite interesting for me as well, seeing this, discovering this at this point, because of course, I, I suppose I've got a bit more of an overview than you would have. I mean, obviously, Bob Dylan's been recording a lot more albums since you probably first heard this album. 
Whereas I suppose I've, I've been able to kind of set it a bit more in context, in the context of his kind of canon. And it's interesting because there, there is, he, he seems to kind of fluctuate and go in and out of this kind of backward looking kind of sentimentality. I mean, you reckon that's fair, Mark? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what sort of records are you thinking of that are coming up down the track that, that sets it in that context for you? I mean, I, I actually see this, I mean, I'm probably not the only person that sees this as a bit of a precursor, really, to stuff like Blood on the Tracks and Desire. And mm. it's probably, I mean, okay, so yeah, Blood on the Tracks is, is very sort of retrospective, isn't it? Desire is, is just a great record, and, and, and yes, okay, so there's sentimentality on that, but I suppose I wonder if if it feels a little bit like a bit of a recalibration kind of thing. I mean, there was nothing wrong with Bob Dylan. He didn't need to kind of recalibrate, but it kind of almost feels like he's he's awoken a little bit from a slumber or a torpor or a semi kind of um, hibernation kind of thing. And he's, he's suddenly back with a bang. And, and, and as we know, there's a whole load of great records in the near future after this one. And I wonder if he's just kind of sort of almost reshaping his approach slightly. I think I've managed to dodge your question there quite successfully, Mark, <laughs> with no specific. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, I, I, well, we're going to come on to this um, today and, and certainly next time as well, I think. But the way he starts treating time in, in a lot of his new songs is, is quite different from what he'd been doing before. But actually, just thinking about it, of course, you, you're quite right. I mean, all the way back to North Country Blues, he's, he's harking back, isn't he, to um, to his childhood, as it were, and to the places he's grown up in. And of course, when he wrote that song, he was only two or three years out of it, and he was he had that kind of nostalgia for the recent past thing going on. But yeah, it's it's, it's very sharp here, isn't it? And I guess you can see the link between that and the sort of the new phase he's, he's about to embark on. One thing I did just want to mention at the start is... Uh, of course, I, as I said, I did come to this record many years ago when I didn't know very much about Bob Dylan at all. And I think I'd read that he was from Hibbing and that Hibbing was quite close to this other town that begins with the letter D. But I had no idea how to pronounce it. So I always, in my head, I always pronounced it as Dulleth, which is quite a, a, a sort of um, Midlands <laughs> British way of saying it, I think. Um, so when I heard Duluth on, on this record, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't miss, I didn't make the link to his own past. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly there. It's, um, it's, funny, it's funny that with... Well, uh, so, no, so I was just going to say about the, uh, the pronunciation. It's like the idea of, uh, yeah, Duluth, down the road from Hybing kind of thing. But I was, I'm, re- I'm reminded of that um, David Hepworth, I think, who he was saying, I think it was him, the first time he'd... he'd sort of heard of Bob Dylan he assumed it was Bob Dylan kind of thing which uh, you, you do if, if you're if you're just seeing things in print then it's very easy to mis- misinterpret them isn't it absolutely yeah and I guess um, if anyone's playing uh, bingo with this uh, this podcast this is the bit where we we hark back to the fact that it was the 90s and you couldn't just go and listen to stuff at the drop of a hat so yeah you know um, I, I think I would have read about this in Robert Shelton's book. I would have picked up this record, and that was, you know, between those two things, that was all I knew about Duluth or Duluth. So, um, yeah, there you go. So, what about the um, the kind of background to this this record? Then, I mean, I think you've got a few things to say about this. I know. I mean, it's obviously it's a, a collaboration with the band, and that's very very important, and that shapes an awful lot of how it sounds. And I think. The arrangements are very, very important on this. What about the kind of the, the sort of overall background then, Mark? Yeah, so it is it's worth saying, isn't it, that it's it was a long time at this point since his last proper record, which I guess you could say was New Morning. 
Uh, I mean, obviously, we've talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and it's, it's worth pointing out the record Dylan, which we've skipped over, haven't we? Um, which was that we, kind of cash charge that one. We're just we're not even going to engage. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the Christmas special. We're we're breaking the uh, the episode uh, chain there. We're just skipping that one outright. But yeah, so I mean, that was just a cash grab by Columbia, wasn't it? After he'd, he'd left them. Yeah, and, um, and 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 this one's on asylum, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, but one thing I've always wondered, actually, about that schism with Columbia and the fact that they put out this record almost in spite was why they scraped the barrel and, and put out those, you know, awful cover versions that were kind of self-portrait rejects. Because, of course, they would have had all the stuff in the can that we now know about. They probably could have put out something quite quite good if they'd, if they'd really bothered uh, to, to make a go of it. Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Because they, I mean, they, they would not have been short on people wanting to buy the record. I mean, I know that it's a little way down the line, but the, the basement tapes was massively of, of interest to people, wasn't it, when, when it was released, uh, even as a bootleg. And so if they put some of the stuff out from the archives, yeah, people would have really gone for it. But I mean, it's, I think the fact that we're not, dealing with this album Dylan I mean it's just it's probably worth reminding people that we are <laughs> we're fans rather than uh, experts and definitely not completists in that sense as well so uh, <laughs> so if, if if you want the uh, the absolute kind of uh, authority on this then uh, then then please please don't think that you'll find uh, the the answers here necessarily <laughs> yeah always good to have that disclaimer in just in case it hasn't been apparent over the previous 13 <laughs> episodes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so I mean, this is the thing, and it, there's a there's a line in uh, one of Clinton Halen's books, I think, where he talks about the first track on this record and the kind of sinking feeling that he had at the time when he sort of thought this is going to be another New Morning Stroke Nashville Skyline type of record, which it doesn't turn out to be, of course. But you know, from uh, on a night like this, you might think that's the direction we're going in again. And I guess that's one of the things that we're trying to do in this this way of working that we we operate with, uh, where we could do go through the records in sequence. We try to recapture a little bit of that sense of what it would have been like to hear these things as they came out. And of course, we can't ever do that because we know that Round the Corner is blood on the tracks and desire. But you wouldn't have known that when you dropped the needle on that first track back in 1974. No, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I mean, because yeah, the first time I heard this, uh, the, the, the opening track, I thought it sounded a bit Nashville skyline-y. I thought it sounded pretty lightweight. It kind of sounded like Nashville skyline with a sort of Zydeco kind of feel. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right when you say about the, the idea that we know what's coming, whereas you wouldn't have done back in 1974. I think it was George Harrison that talks about the, the fact that when you write a song, you, you never know if there's another one coming kind of thing. And, and that, that can very much be applied to this. Uh, for all that the Bob Dylan fans who are listening to this first time round knew, this might have been it. This might have been him and then he'd have been off to retire kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it, it's slow burn at the start, isn't it? And it's one of these albums that I think gets better and better as it, as, as it goes through, actually. I think it gets stronger and stronger, really, and, more, and, and packs more of an emotional punch the more that you listen to it. Definitely agree with that. And, you know, I think that was, that was understood at the time, wasn't it? And I think certainly by critics and, and audiences, but perhaps by Dylan himself. Because, of course, the other important bit of background to this record is that um, by the time Dylan and the band got together to record it in, in the November, they already knew that they were going to be on the road in the January to uh, kick off with Tour 74. And we're going to be covering that in our next episode, I think, because we are 
not going to be skipping before the flood. So um, we're going to be we're going to be talking a little bit about that in more detail next time. But yeah, so I think Dylan himself was conscious of the fact that he w- he was back. He was both back on the road, and he was back with this batch of songs that was was more heavyweight than anything he'd had for a good a good five or six years. It was an interesting quote from around the time when he was interviewed by Time. I think it was during the tour, or certainly around the time of the release of the record. And he said, I'm not standing at an altar, I'm working in the marketplace. And of course, whether he meant this or not, we all immediately think back to the famous review of uh, Self-Portrait, where the demand was that he get back into the marketplace. And this is certainly where he does that, isn't it? Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I mean, it's one of those things that that quote might well have been met by a bit of disdain at the time. It's interesting. I, I mentioned David Hepworth earlier. I've been reading some of his kind of collected writings. And uh, one of the things that he points out is this idea that he finds it so strange that people have such uh, outraged reactions when... <laughs> when musicians ever appear to be doing anything for the money. And uh, it's, it's just this idea that, well, it is a job. I mean, okay, so it's, they're, they're making art and all of this wonderful stuff and they're changing lives and they're making memories. But the idea that, that Bob Dylan says that is absolutely kind of how he makes his living. But again, I think that would probably have been frowned upon at the time. But yeah, he is. He's very much back in the marketplace here. He means business. He sounds, I mean, we'll, we'll go on to talk about this a little bit. He sounds contemporary. He sounds like he has really properly arrived in the 70s here. Um, and of course, the band helped him to do that. And yet the, the whole thing about the tour, the 1974 tour, before the flood, isn't it? It's not after the flood. That's it's before the flood. Yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, the poetry uh, book, isn't it? Is, is after the flood. That's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll definitely do. We'll definitely do the uh, a podcast on that though, because I I had it on tape. I bought it from a car boot sale. So there you go. That's, uh, <laughs> so, it made such an impact. I couldn't remember the title, but there. <laughs> well, do, do you know what though, Rich? Um, I I hadn't ever thought before you said that that he might have been referring to the marketplace as a commercial space. I always thought of it as the marketplace of ideas and you know the marketplace of creative expression, but. Yeah, you're quite right. That's that's what he's referring to. It's the commercial venture as much as the artistic one. But I think it, the, the the quote works in, on both levels, doesn't it? He's 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 certainly back into the commercial touring sphere. And this was a hit record, of course. But yeah, he's also back as a kind of heavyweight, serious artist. I think on this yeah. record, I, I realised there. I, I've totally sort of de-romanticized that idea there by by coming in with the sort of fiscal <laughs> capitalist interpretation, which the very literal interpretation, which is. Uh, so I almost feel like I should retract that. But <laughs> but yeah, going back to that, though, it was. It was a big commercial success. Uh, it was number one in the US. It was number seven in the uh, in the UK. And it was, I mean, it was, it was pretty well received by the critics, wasn't it? I mean, in fact, it was very well received by the critics. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think, it's, uh, as we, we said on New Morning, really, it's, it's funny how I think, despite that, it, it sort of goes a little bit under the radar now. And, and obviously that's because of what's coming next. But yeah, the, the tour itself was big news at the time. This record was a, was a big success. The live record was a big success. But the whole period is, is overshadowed for Dylan by Blood on the Tracks. And even for the band, actually, I think it's overshadowed by The Last Waltz. I mean, that's the thing that people would go to, I guess, as the, the document of the band as a live uh, unit rather than, than the tour with Dylan or, or indeed this record. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's a bit unfair, really. It's a bit of a shame because this is, this is a, as we've said, it's a, it's a very strong record. What about the name then? Because, I mean, I, weirdly, when, 
when it came to this, I was thinking that this sounded a little bit sort of new agey. And uh, as with so many Dylan album titles, I, it kind of wrong foots you a little bit. I don't know. I mean, my, is it to do with the sort of insignificance of humanity, maybe? Is it to do with our place on the in the big scheme of things? Or is it, what, what do you reckon, Mark? Am I reading too much into it? Well, no, you're definitely going to have to expand on that. Because I, I, I always have um, two much more lightweight impressions of the album title, which I can never, <laughs> I can never unpick. One is uh, just literally <laughs> the surface of a planet covered by water, which... Um, I think it's a bit too literal. But the other one is the concept of planet waves in seismology, where you get these kind of long vibrations that, that lead to earthquakes and things like that. And, and I, I always sort of try to connect that to the idea of, you know, uh, the impact that Dylan has on the culture and the world at large. And I wondered if there was some kind of play on that, but I couldn't quite get it to work. And I think I'm talking nonsense. So uh, very interested to hear what you, what you say about it. That's very interesting, though, that idea of it almost being a bit kind of tectonic and it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now I, my my take on it planet waves is just that it's i mean it, it's pretty ambiguous anyway isn't it but i the idea of the insignificance of, of people i wonder if it's still playing down his role as this kind of troubadour that uh, is almost directing traffic kind of pointing somehow to this sort of insignificance of humanity uh almost in that sort of same i suppose sensibility as with songs like every grain of sand and stuff like that the idea that we're some kind of minute speck of almost nothingness in in the big scheme of things and i wonder if uh i mean that's gone the other way i i, I was talking about the the marketplace in in uh, capitalist terms and now i've gone completely way out there in the idea of philosophical nonsense so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether to stop digging or carry on. <laughs> if you keep digging, you'll come out on the other side of the planet eventually. So um, exactly, yeah. there's, there's got to be a wave there somewhere. The title aside, then, mate, how does how does this kind of work as a as a record? I mean, we've we've obviously dealt with a few records in the run up to this that have been a, a bit patchy. I think it's fair to say. What, what's your take on Planet Waves then in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely an extremely strong record. That's that's clear even on first listen. I guess I guess the the question is to what extent our view of its place in in Dylan's career is is influenced by the fact that we know Blood on the Tracks is coming. And you know, I think there's there's kind of a a loose trilogy that people sometimes set up with this record on the tracks and desire and i think you can see the links between those three records in hindsight of course and you know people like shelton have said you know it was the start of a new stylistic period if not necessarily a, a new trilogy and halen says um that you know the way that the themes develop in this record points quite directly to the way Dylan start playing around and developing similar themes in Blood on the Tracks. So I think, you know, that, that, those are fair comments, certainly. But I think, in a way, they're almost unfair because they do sort of presuppose the fact that this is a transitional record that's leading on to something greater. And, and while that might well be true, I think we, we, we need to take the time to enjoy this for what it is. And what it is, is something which is really incredibly cohesive. I'm not sure whether its cohesion stems from the fact that you've got the band delivering this this tremendous performance throughout and Dylan really rising to that and you know we'll we'll talk about his performances later I'm sure but as a as a as a performance this record is is something special I think. But also you've got this 
the, these these unifying themes. We've spoken about the um, you know the callbacks to his childhood and to the North Country. You've also got this really interesting dynamic that plays throughout the whole record about this object of affection. You know, this muse, whoever she may be, and we, we think we know who she is, but leaving that to one side. You know, the way that 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 evolves throughout the the set of songs is is really interesting. And so the whole thing gets bound together in a way that we haven't seen since at least John Wesley Harding. And Shelton was saying, I think, in his book that he thought this was the most cohesive record since Blonde on Blonde, both because of the way the themes tie it together and because of the musicality. And I think it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the band... It's it's so important, isn't it? I mean, I'm always fascinated by the band in the same way that I'm fascinated with the Beatles because, okay, so one of those those I mean, the Beatles, sorry, I say one of those one of those beat combos. You know, you might have heard of them. Um, so the Beatles were, I mean, really, they were formed in in Hamburg, as in that was the melting pot that really made them what they were, playing in really rough joints for. US sailors that were drunk and fighting and all of that kind of stuff playing for hours and hours and hours and and they became this kind of band of brothers that sort of bond is formed on the road I mean okay so it's easy to romanticize it but at the same time that's kind of what galvanized them really and the band in many respects okay so we tend to think of them I think because of the fact that they looked like a load of sort of prospectors and railroad men and stuff like that as as being much more old-fashioned and I always thought of them as being older than they were curiously but I mean they had this a very very similar kind of background in as much as they were playing rough as hell clubs all over the place from a very very young age and it was that kind of shared experience that bonded them together I mean they were playing in really rough joints like you know the clubs that Jack Ruby owned and stuff like that, like proper kind of mafioso dens. And I think when you've got a band like that, I mean, I use that phrase like band of brothers. I mean, obviously we think of Bob Dylan as being this kind of, he's almost above that. Yes, okay, so he's an ensemble player when he needs to be, but he's this entity all unto himself. But I think what he does with the band when he gets them is is he's, it's almost like a, a dial a band of brothers, a renter band of brothers kind of thing. And he has all of that expertise and that closeness and that unity. And it's almost like they're playing like one homogenized unit and he can just harness that. And I think that is, you can't sort of overstate how important that is to the cohesion of the sound because they are so sympathetic to what he wants to do, aren't they? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we'll get onto this a bit more when we, we talk about Before the Flood next time. The kind of similarities and contrasts between that and the 66 tour are, uh, are really interesting. It's, it's, I mean, I know they played together in between the recording of this record and, and the end of the 66 tour, but it was pretty sporadic. But nevertheless, you get the sense, don't you, of some, someone just, just, just coming into a room again and picking up and, um, and, it, and it, being, it just being right and easy. And I, I don't know if that was how it was in the recording process, but you, you, get, you certainly get that feeling when you hear how tight and how together everything is on this record. I think that's right. I think it's almost, it's, it's like it's in their bloodstream, isn't it, with the band? And I think you, you, you just go in and, and, and it's almost like you're plugging into that and, uh, and they're going to be great, whoever they, they, they kind of back. One other thing about the cohesion, actually, it's not strictly about the cohesion, but I, just while I remember, obviously, we call, this, um, we call this podcast Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. We try and make links between Dylan and the immortal bard, not so much because... 
I mean, obviously we are aware of the fact they're operating 400 odd years apart, but to do with their kind of cultural significance. And we've, we've talked a lot, Mark, haven't we, about the idea of this being a precursor to Blood on the Tracks and that we know Blood on the Tracks is coming. But I, I'm reminded there with what you said, it's unfair to kind of judge this um, as, a, as a sort of transition record. And I think we can say the same sort of thing about Shakespeare. I mean, it would almost be like saying, you know, he peaked in 1600 with Hamlet in the same way that we might say that Bob Dylan had peaked with Blonde on Blonde or something like that. And then ignoring things like Twelfth Night and Othello uh, until kind of King Lear comes along. And I mean, it's, it's farcical really, isn't it? When you've got anyone who's got a body of work that's as, as rich and as varied as either of these two guys, then you, you can't write off one bit of the output as being kind of lesser, really, because, yes, they're going to be stepping stones, but th- that doesn't mean that there's not amazingly brilliant things about them in each case. Oh, absolutely. That was what I was getting at when I was uh, talking about the, the sort of the, the excitement you can feel in this record, because I think part of it is down to the fact that you've got these um, it's six guys, isn't it, who are, who are playing together and really sparking off each other. And part of it, I wonder, actually, um, how much of it was the fact that they were in anticipation of the fact they were going to be going back on the road again after they'd finished recording this record. That, that must have been in the forefront of everyone's minds. But the other thing is just how, how much is it the, the quality of the songs that's exciting everyone to rise to the, the peaks that they attain on, on this record? I mean, yeah, you know, you, you can see something like Something There Is About You or Tough Mama, as you can see them as songs that lead to something like Idiot Wind, and I think they do, but they're just fantastic songs in their own right. I mean, Going, Going, Gone, Hazel, Wedding Song, Dirge, you know, it's been a while since we've been able to just reel off these songs like that and and realise how many classics there are. And you're right, you know, (laughs) I I always remember uh, coming across... um, Chris Martin from Coldplay doing a cover of Simple Twist of Fate on Spotify and being uh, quite disturbed for a number of reasons by that. But you're never going to come across somebody like that doing a cover of Hazel or Wedding Song. But those songs are almost as strong, if not as strong, as what, what as, as the more famous canonical songs are. And it's a great collection of songs, just as simple as that, leaving aside the performances that, that really put the cherry on top. Yeah, I, th- I, I totally agree with that. And I think that I mean, I, I do wonder if part of this, he talks about being in the marketplace again. I'm going to go back to that quote. I'm sorry about that. But the idea that he's sort of aware of how the musical world has shifted, really. I mean, if you look at the, the, the key albums of 1973, for example, you've got Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, Band on the Run by Wings, A Lad Insane by Bowie, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, and Quadrophenia by The Who, and all of those are, I mean, okay, so he might not have seen them as being in direct competition, but if you're in the marketplace and you're looking at strong collections of songs, then you're going to know that you're going to have to put something pretty special out to kind of knock them off their perch, really. Yeah, and and that's something which we perhaps haven't talked about as much, really, the sort of... um, the competitive element of, uh, of Dylan's development. I mean, I think when we were talking about Highway 61, we, we talked about him being so far ahead of his peers. And um, yes. I think that was true at that time. But as we said at that time, people subsequently caught him up and surpassed him. And, you know, just from a professional pride point of view, he must have been thinking along the lines of, you know, um, I've still got a bit in my locker here. I can still show you what I'm 
what I'm capable of doing. I mean, actually, the, the funny story that, uh, or the funny theory, I should say, that uh, Clinton Halen has about Forever Young is that it's quite directly pointed at Neil Young in the sense that when Bob wrote the song in uh, 72, I think it was, when he was uh, living in Arizona, Neil Young had had his, his big hit with Harvest and, and Heart of Gold. And uh, Dylan was quite piqued that this sound, which was so close to what he'd been doing, just sort of, I suppose, polished a little bit and was reaping this commercial success. Um, and his attempt to write A Heart of Gold was forever young. And the title is therefore a pun on, uh, on Neil Young's success. I've no idea if that's true, but it, 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 it plays in, doesn't it, to that, that idea that actually, you know, the man's back now and, and you're going to have to contend with this. Yeah, I mean, there's a power there, isn't there? I know the other quote I was going to mention, actually, this, which is not entirely related to that, but it kind of comes back. I, I wonder if it's it's almost like, right, okay, I see what's going on here. I need to up this a few notches. I'm going to call back my buddies and I'm going to be back by then to knock people like Neil Young off their perch kind of thing. Um, there's, this, there's this great uh, quotation. I think it was in like Mojo magazine years ago. And there's a Bruce Springsteen song called This Hard Land. And there's, he plays the first verse. It's just harmonica, guitar and him singing. And then it's sort of under his breath. He just sort of goes uh, like, come on. And then the, the band just kick in. And someone described it as being like a, like a couple of older brothers pitching in to help you in a fight against the school bully. And I, I just love the idea that that's kind of what the, Dylan's thought, right, okay, I've got my guys around me now. Let's go out and, uh, you know, kick ass and take names kind of thing. I'm, I'm back and, uh, and, um, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm turning up, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, I'm showing that I'm still relevant, essentially. And I think that's why, again, I think that's why the band are so important in this case. Well, shall we talk a little bit about that then, Rich? I mean, there's, there's so much to enjoy, isn't there? But I think particularly for me, the, the bit that stood out just for playing was, um, was uh, Tough Mama. And um, I think it's the organ especially that drives that. But throughout, one of the things that unifies it is, uh, is Robbie's guitar playing. And that, and that sound he gets as well. Um, I'm not quite sure how to define it, but um, I think you, uh, you probably have got a better handle on that than I have. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, as far as I can, I mean, I know that he was using a lot of what I think are called pinched harmonics in the last waltz. And I think that there's quite a lot of that on this album. It's that kind of, well, you get the harmonic by using a very small part of the pick or like by a fingernail and you kind of, vary where you're at to get the to get the sort of higher frequency then i mean on some of the songs there's a bit of uh, what sounds like sort of big speed tremolo arm kind of thing uh, but through a reverb unit again i might be way off here but that's just my interpretation and then some of the playing's quite sort of mandolin-esque really where he's just playing i don't know i guess like a, a trained musician would probably call them like demi semi quavers but very very quick kind of trills effectively on the strings and I mean those are all things that he uses he uses a lot more I think later on in the in the band's career really but they're all kind of on here and they all sound fantastic I mean the way that the organ and the guitar and everything else mold together are just brilliant but yeah his his guitar playing here is a highlight because it's just so tasteful I think yeah yeah and it, it is that that effect of of, of unifying what well, actually are quite I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted about it because you've got, in terms of the, the songs we've got here, you know, we, we've identified some of these themes that keep recurring, but you've also got quite, um, quite different songs in terms of the, the styles. I mean, stuff like On a Night Like This and Your New Angel You, 
I mean, this stuff could very easily have sat on Nashville Skyline or New Morning. But then you've got something like Dirge, which is just at the complete opposite end of the scale, isn't it? I mean, I don't think we've, we've heard Dylan be as acerbic as this or as uh, acidic, I suppose, as this. Certainly not since, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe Blonde on Blonde even. It's, um, sort of positive, it's a positively fourth street kind of acerbicness, isn't it, I suppose? It's yeah, kind of yeah. Like spreading onto that territory. That's right. Um, and, and yet, but then you've got these sort of, I don't know how to describe them, but these, um, these songs which are very much in the new style that we're going to hear a lot more of later, like um, Something There Is About You, Tough Mama, Never Say Goodbye, where he's really um, keying into that kind of sense of uh, linking the past and the present. And then, of course, he's got the... Uh, the uh, the acoustic version of wedding song at the end where he's um, he's almost renouncing that and saying the past is gone this love is, is more important than all of that and it doesn't quite ring true does it even um, even at the end of this record no no absolutely not and and that's it's that sense of it you, you're being taken on a journey really through so many different emotions really here aren't, aren't you I think yeah I mean we, we sort of mentioned on a night like this I think I mean going going gone uh, going going gone I I I really like I think it's it's fantastic Hazel I love something there is about you I, my theory is that he's kind of, he'd been reading Robert Frost's poetry in in the run up to this because the word order there doesn't make any sense something there is about you the only time I've ever seen it before and this probably shows how badly read I am in many respects is there's a Robert Frost poem called Mending Wall and there something it starts out along the lines of something there is that doesn't love a wall and it's just starting it that way around I think he's had that I think he's thought right Frosty I love <laughs> but that said I mean it, it's it's just brilliant I mean it's it's such a such a wonderful song yeah uh, it is uh, yeah uh, well I mean I think there's something <laughs> yeah, there's something. Um, there's definitely something about the way he really so eloquently evokes those um, those past memories. And as so often with Dylan, it's the lyric itself is is marvelous, but it's it's made transcendent by his performance. And, and I think we're gonna we are gonna call back a little bit here to our early episodes where we always used to say, if anyone ever says Bob Dylan can't sing, play them this. And I'd certainly add this track to the um, the list. I mean, I, I don't know if it's the phrasing, it's more like the emphasis, isn't it? The, I don't know, the, the way he accentuates the, the lyric to, that brings out the underlying emotion. Some, quite an incredible performance. But thematically, I love the way that he, he has, he sort of situates the muse, I suppose the subject of the song in a way, who is very much someone who's in his present within this uh, this, this call back to his past. And I think when I was listening back to it this time, one of the things that struck me was that you could, you could actually think of it in the same way that we think of Mr. Tambourine Man or Visions of Johanna, where actually the object of affection or the, you know, the, um, the hero of the song, if you want to put it like that, is actually his inspiration. And it's, it's that that he's rekindling. And it's that that links him back to how he used to feel um, in these bygone times. And the, the other thing that I think is really interesting is when he talks about being in a better place, having been in the whirlwind, the obvious interpretation is that, you know, that kind of craziness of the, the mid-60s is what he's now escaped from. And he sees now and his childhood as being the, the periods of calm on the other side of that. Yeah. But you could also see it, you could also very much see it as actually he's recapturing 
what made those times special in those crazy times now. And actually, the, the, the discontinuity is the, the time between then and now where he'd lost this ability to, to conjure up performances like this and songs like this. And, and I think that ambiguity, whether it's intentional or not, is, uh, is part of what makes it so spellbinding as a, as a song and also as a performance. Yeah, I mean, it's like he's... I mean, there's, there's all sorts of thoughts, aren't there, about... It? has he now abandoned the idea of kind of narrative writing and it becomes more like painting or is it more kind of, well, you'll know more about this, but the idea of the quantum physics idea where sort of everything's happening at the same time in sort of different realms and time isn't seen as a sort of continuum. I'm going to stop about that one before I get out of my depth. But the, um, I think that the, that idea that you had about the performance and the delivery here, I mean, People always talk about Sinatra when it comes to phrasing, but I mean, Bob Dylan in this song, it's absolutely there in buckets, isn't it? And I mean, you could write essays, you could write books about that, just the line, rainy days on the Great Lakes, walking in the hills of old Duluth. I mean, it's so evocative, it's incredible. But as you say, it's very pastoral. I mean, it's almost, uh, to make a Shakespearean link, it's almost that kind of pastoral idea of looking, you know, yearning, looking back to the childhood and it's almost like Minnesota becomes the the kind of forest of Arden kind of place in As You Like It. I know we've we've mentioned uh, Dylan's kind of tendency to kind of almost romanticize places in the past but I think that's very much happening here but yeah the idea is that the, the idea of, of, of time in, in this is, is quite elusive isn't it it's sort of there's there's people that are populating this that aren't necessarily uh belong didn't belong there and he's just kind of transported them and I quite like the idea of it being the muse because then it's not just one person is it it's kind of an entity rather than a, than a human being if that doesn't sound too way out there <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking when you uh, were talking about the the quantum realm. Um, I've recently uh, been exposed to the uh, Marvel universe, and so uh, my immediate thought was uh, to think about the Ant Man films. Um, so that, that's about as highbrow as I get these days when it comes to thinking about quantum physics. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm no better off. As, as, as long as long as M, as E is still MC squared, I'm happy normally. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, but yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing about this record. I think you know, for me, I, I do think something there is about you particularly stands out. But Dylan's performances are so fantastic throughout. And on the second side, we get the um, the two acoustic numbers, which are much more pared down. Yeah. And again, he, he, they're just they're just staggeringly good. In in the same way that we we almost took it for granted on those early records, that he'd pick up his guitar and produce something astonishing in a couple of takes. You know, we're we're back in that space, aren't we? I totally agree. And yes, it, it seems so kind of effortless, doesn't it? But again, I don't know how many takes he would have done of any of these, but it just sounds so incredibly natural on things like Wedding Song, for example. I was going to just talk about uh, about Forever Young, actually, because I mean, I know we mentioned it a little bit and we've mentioned it with, with regard to Neil Young, uh, whether or not we'll, people will believe that or agree with it, I don't know. But there is the, I mean, it's quite well documented, isn't it? One of his childhood friends came by the studio and essentially sort of said, wow, you've, you've gone sort of almost soft in your old age. And the, it was only due to the producer, Rob uh, Fraboni, isn't it, that was, uh, that was, that was uh, producing this, that, that the, the slower version 
actually stayed on because Dylan apparently after hearing this just sort of thought right I want to ditch that and and I mean that would have been a an absolute travesty wouldn't it because it's just glorious it's just an astonishing astonishing version and while I remember the I, I've never heard I mean it, it's beautiful on this it's astonishing on the uh, the last waltz but there is a version of this recorded by the Soweto Gospel Choir which is just I mean it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and it just shows how well this song works in in different contexts really yeah I mean this is another one of those songs I think a bit like blowing in the wind where it's almost like for us it's so prevalent so well known that you have to take a step back sometimes to appreciate the the greatness of it and I think I could be wrong about this but I think the Dylan as well both of those songs were the sorts of songs that almost seem to arrive fully formed and it's just a question of of tuning into something and writing it down and it's there and I wonder sometimes when when artists experience that it almost devalues it for them. It's almost as though they haven't they haven't done it, they've just discovered it. And they perhaps value the things that they sweat over a lot more. I don't know. I mean, I know in the case of Forever Young, he, he certainly did work on it for a, for, a, for a long time. But the core of the song, I think, was was something that, that came to him quite quickly. And, and he sat on for a while before recording. But maybe there's something about that as well that, you know, you sort of almost suspect that it can't be that good if it's come to you in that way. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it might well be the case that if you're not having to sweat over it, it almost seems too easy. You might almost suspect that it's kind of come from from somewhere else or someone else kind of thing, or that it might actually be flying quite close to what someone else has done. Or, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's odd, isn't it? But the, he he certainly seemed to be far less sentimental about this one as a song. Than most other people are because I mean most people you listen to you listen to this song and just think wow this is amazing it's wonderful it's just it's so kind of emotional isn't it but yeah um, it seems to have quite a blasé attitude uh, towards it but then that's not a surprise when we consider what we've said about him previously. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yes and before I forget um, I agree I mean the version the slow version that closes side one is sublime but the version that we got on shadow kingdom was was lovely as well and he can't think that badly of it if he resurrected it last year so maybe he's coming around but it's so typical of him isn't it to immediately spin that around with the the fast version that that kicks off side two and of course that might have been in reaction to the accusation that he was um he'd gone a bit mushy and the fact that he follows it with dirge certainly seems to be a riposte about <laughs> but I wonder if it also sort of points the way to what he's going to start doing in very short order which is just completely rearranging almost rewriting his songs in in performance and I think that's that's something that occurred to me listening back to the record this time when people heard those two versions of Forever Young on this record they might have been almost jarred by it like I remember I was the first time I heard it they might have thought it was a cop-out or you know a way to fill space or something what wouldn't have been clear to people at this time was that this is the way Dylan works Uh, you know every time he approaches a song he's going to be doing it in a different way and you can't be certain that what you're familiar with is what you're going to get because I think even on those so I was going to say Rich I think even even on those those performances in 66 despite the the, the confrontational nature of that tour. I think for the most part, people who had been familiar with his records would have recognised the songs. But 
that's not the case in, in tours to come. No, that's absolutely right. And um, I mean, I think this might be one of the points when he starts to sort of move away from this idea that, I mean, a record was, was if we think about it in terms of the meaning of it, it's, it's recording the way that the song should sound. And then the idea was that people go out on the road and replicate this. And I mean, even Dylan in the sixties was doing this to a, to a pretty large degree, but yeah, I think you're right. This is almost saying like, Hey, you can't trust anything that you get. Cause I'm just going to screw around with it and you never know what it's going to sound, what it's going to turn out like on the night. And the idea that he's doing the same song in two such different ways, I think really kind of illustrates that that's, well, that's there in the back of his mind. It's an idea that's just stating, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think we're, we're richer for it, aren't we? I mean, I remember the first time I encountered his, his, his live albums, which would have been around the time I heard Planet Waves. I was, I was as, uh, as disgusted as most of the fans were at the time. So, but I think as you, as, you, as you listen to more and more of it and you realise how much of it is out there, and in, and in this, this series of podcasts, we're barely scratching the surface, but um, even um, much, much more diehard fans uh, find it difficult to, to, to experience everything he's done because of the sheer volume of the number of ways he's arranged his songs. And um, it's one of the reasons why we still keep talking about him. I think so. And, that's, and, and we're only ever, certainly in the capacity that we're going to do, kind of scratching at the surface. But it's just this endless capacity for reinvention and this endless capacity for sort of variation. And and that is, you're right. That's what makes it fascinating. Um, and, and it's, it's the way that he does this with language as well. I mean, it's this, just this massive excitement of, uh, that, that he seems to have for, for language and that's forever being reworked. I mean, changing lyrics, changing verses, choruses, whatever it may be. And, I think again that's that's one of the things that that ties in with with Shakespeare in terms of this kind of excitement and the the restlessness of the creative muse really just while it kind of occurs to me there's I do think we can we can maybe with wedding song it, it always reminds me well I say always reminds me of that in the last couple of weeks when I've been listening to this it kind of reminds me in a way of the end of much ado about nothing this idea of you've got kind of conflict and then sort of acceptance and potentially a sort of sense of reconciliation i mean dylan ends this with an and i could never let you go no matter what goes on because i love you more than ever now that the past is gone and i it's sort of i mean this might be a bit spurious it probably is but the idea when benedict at the end of much ado says man is a giddy thing and that is my conclusion and uh, this is essentially when he's decided to marry and he's decided to kind of change his ways and accept what, what, what he's sort of become. And again, that's one of those lines that could be, it could be seen in so many different ways. You could interpret it like that. But as with Shakespeare, the meaning is never fixed. And I think that's what's so, that's what I like about Wedding Song, actually. I just find it kind of quite fascinating because you're looking at it, you look at it on the page, it means one thing. You hear it with his delivery, it seems to mean something else. And then you'll come back to a particular verse and all of a sudden it makes no sense whatsoever. But um, yeah, I, I really... I, I really think Wedding Song's very, very strong and I, I, I enjoyed trying to decipher it and <laughs> failed miserably in the process, but there we go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it really works in that way as the, the final song of the record. I, 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 think, I think I'm right in saying it was written with the intention of being the closing song and it works so beautifully, exactly as you say, because it, it, does, it, it could be seen as, as closing the book on those those songs that are almost ambiguously dancing between past and present 
but then when you hear the, the delivery um, and you reflect back on the rest of the record, perhaps it, it's not quite as simple as that. Yeah, I think you're right. So are there, are there any more, I mean, songs, particular songs you'd like, to, you'd like to talk about then, Mark, or do we want to start sort of thinking highlights and lowlights and stuff like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I've probably already mentioned this. I, I think for me, the well, I suppose one thing that's, that I haven't said is I, I do think that side one is stronger than side two. I think Hazel is an extremely underrated song that I've always liked. But I think my, my two highlights would be Tough Mama and Something There Is About You. I guess we haven't talked a lot about Tough Mama. I mean, I, I think, again, the, the performance there of the band is great. But I think probably the reason I like those two songs the most is that they are the two songs where Dylan's performance is at its most excited. And this this idea I was I was trying to get across about wondering whether he was energized by the band or by the material. I think on on these two songs, I think it's clearly both. You know, he's he's he's, he's riding the performance of the band, but he's also really invested in what he's singing, and it, it, his performance is so strong. And I think I think they do point the way towards put on the tracks and what's coming later. But I think you don't need that context to enjoy them. I think they work really well as just outstanding performances. I agree with you because I think that the band does drive his performance. I mean, you see this at other points in his career as well. That there's there's a version on not Biograph. I think it's the bootleg series of When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, where he's clearly the more he plays that song, the more he gets kind of g'd up. And I think that you you see the same kind of thing here. There's a real sense of enthusiasm, isn't there? I think it's, I mean, it's fantastic. And the band, again, they're so great. I, I wonder what would have happened had the band played on John Wesley Harding, because I like John Wesley Harding. I know that I'm digressing hugely, but the, lack, the sort of lack of arrangements on that, I know that it's deliberately sparse and everything like this, but the, what the band gives to these songs, I mean... I, I really wonder what would have happened on, 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 on a record like that, for example, because it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary um, because, of course, he'd already gone electric then to have had the band playing alongside him on something like that because they give it so much, don't they? He's not going through the motion series, the point I'm trying to make. There's nothing about that performance, and I think it's because a lot of it is the pressure of having a really shit-hot band in the studio with him and him thinking, right, I better live up to this. Yeah, I think you're right. And I suppose we, we sort of do have a John Wesley Harding with the band, don't we? In the sense that the, the Basement Tapes is, is largely, I suppose, what that record would have sounded like if, if he had recorded it with the band at that time. And that was why it was such a strange thing, wasn't it, to go down to, to Nashville with those songs, having had the experience of playing with the band all that time and deciding to do something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess when we get to the end of this, um, this series, we can go back and, uh, and look at the albums again. <laughs> re-record all of these things and, and answer those kinds of questions exactly um, I, I, I might, might just change the words here and there and in a real homage to uh... <laughs> but I mean you could say the same thing about uh, Blonde on Blonde as well I mean there's no complaints about the, um, the musicianship on there but uh, you know had he played it had, had he recorded those songs after having toured them with the band I mean what kind of a record would that have been yeah, do you know what? You're right. It kind of applies to, to so many of I think that John Wesley Harding was just sprung to mind because it's so it's so sparse kind of thing and uh and, and that injection of energy would have been very interesting. But yeah, my goodness, they, they yeah, it, 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 it could be any of them, couldn't it really? Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with you on something there is about you, I think is, is one of my highlights, definitely. And I, I really like um, Hazel. I, I totally agree. I think it probably doesn't get the credit it deserves, but I mean, what a great song and what a fantastic performance. And, and again, uh, as an example of kind of ensemble playing, I think it's fantastic. Well, are we, uh, are we pretty much up to last thoughts, Rich? I think we probably are, actually. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that this is, I mean, I think this is a very strong album. I think it's a great album. And I've, as I said before, I've, I've really enjoyed discovering it, actually. This is just one of these kind of unknown gems, really, as far as I'm concerned. You, you're absolutely right. It flies under the radar. And obviously, you look at his, his whole canon, this clearly is kind of a stepping stone to blood on the tracks. But I think it sounds fantastic in its own right. I mean, I think the, the idea that this is a return to form is, is probably a little bit false. But as I mentioned earlier, I think you've got this idea of the, um, the, the sort of recalibration. It's like, yeah, I, I kind of have got a bit more of a sense of, of what I want now. I think he feels maybe a bit more at ease with himself in some way, in terms of like, what is Bob Dylan to the rest of the world? What should Bob Dylan be doing? And uh, and obviously they've got one eye on the, the Before the Flood tour. And the guy who produced it for Brony was obviously already employed to do the live sound. And so I think that they're all, they're very much looking forward in this case. Although some of the song subject material is looking backward, they're very much looking forward. And I think there's a shared excitement. And I think that's what makes it so interesting, really. So yeah, I would score it very highly if I had to give it stars, put it that way. What about you, Mark? What are your, <laughs> what are your last thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's it's been one of my favourite records for for a number of years, and I, I, I do think it stands up in its own right as a as a tremendous record. I suppose the only thing we haven't really talked about in in such detail is the fact that this does have so much in it that calls back to, to different points in Dylan's career. So we've mentioned, haven't we, that stuff like You Angel, You could have been on You Morning or um, When I Feel Skyline. I think the way that he performs Wedding Song and Dirge, it calls back those tremendous acoustic performances from the, the 60s in a way that he hasn't managed at any point since until now. And I think you're absolutely right that the whole thing is suffused with this sense of excitement. And altogether, you know, the songs, the performances, the way it hangs together, it's easily his strongest record since um, since John Wesley Harding. And I think sometimes when we when we do this and we, we go back in the way we do, you know, devoting a couple of weeks to listen to the record and, and going through them in order, whether we like it or not, we're, we're sticking to that discipline. <laughs> sometimes there's a little bit of a kind of, um, sometimes there's an apprehension. With something like Highway 61, I was kind of worried that I wouldn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to enjoy it. And then with something like Nashville Skyline, I found that actually, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I, I thought I would at the end of it. But with this one, I, I, never, I never found that. I, I never had the apprehension of diving back into it. And I never had any kind of sense of disappointment or ennui at any point while listening to it. It's just a tremendous record. And it points us towards blood on the tracks of course it does but it it stands on its own two feet as a as a tremendous lesson absolutely i think that that's uh, that's probably a good point to leave it so thank you very much indeed for joining us as always we'll look forward to seeing you next time so join us for before the flood you can find us on twitter search at dylan american and please post any comments we'll be delighted to discuss any ideas or suggestions that you have thanks very much thank you